Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Lori. And we're the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. Hello and welcome to another Tuesday morning with the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. How are you doing, Lori? I am doing well. I think it's funny. We just had like some really silly technical difficulties and I think I'm just still laughing about how how just funny this whole this whole technology world is that we live in. <laughs> right? I think it's something too. This is an interesting thing for every listeners to know. Is Lori and I have never actually met in person. We only yeah. know each other through screens. <laughs> I have no t- idea how tall she is. <laughs> Some point we will meet in person. <laughs> and it'll yeah. be so fun. It will be great. Um, maybe we'll just like coordinate a mutual retreat or something. We'll just host a retreat together and then we'll actually meet and each other. Um, anyway, topic for today. Uh, we, I've been thinking a lot as somebody who's Catholic, I wasn't like deconstruction isn't a word in Catholicism, even as people leave Catholicism we just call ourselves lapsed Catholics or recovering Catholics and there's a whole culture around deconstruction which is really fascinating to me and it's really exciting on the one hand but as I have been sort of in it and immersed in it in social media world it's become apparent that there's some things that feel like a little uncomfortable and I wanted to just talk today about why those things might exist and what's really going on there and how there could be another way if there's another way for the culture that people are coming from all that kind of stuff so yes Lori, what are like your first thoughts best thoughts about that well I think there is there is a real truth to that and I think when I was first introduced to the deconstruction world it was before the word deconstruction existed and I was coming out of evangelicalism. I shouldn't say that. I was in the goddess community that I've talked about before, this, this school of women who are just really in love with their pussies. And we, um, and so I had, and I was kind of like living in those two adjacent worlds until I found out that the Christian feminist movement was happening. And so I joined a lot of groups around Christian feminism and it was great and it was amazing and really shifting for me and healing for me because suddenly I was finding different ways that people were understanding these verses that were so oppressive to women and they were seeing liberation within the text. And that was really exciting to me. However, it did get to a point, I think, after a bit where it did become extremely negative, like almost a recycling space of anger where we talk about trauma, especially in the deconstruction world, we talk about a lot of trauma, but we very rarely talk about healing and getting better from trauma. And I, of course, have experienced my own set of evangelical trauma. And I have uh, also experienced my own set of trauma from patriarchy within the church, but also have worked on ways to grow out of it. And sometimes I I agree with you in the conversation that we were having about how sometimes it feels like there's no movement out. It's, It's creating a place for like the dark. What I talk about in my programs is like the wailing and the crying and the grieving. We create a space for the crying and the grieving, 
but we don't create a space for the resurrection for and I and and I mean that in like a very goddess way where it's like we have our dark moments and then the goddess resurrects and we've yet to experience this moment where the goddess resurrects and I think some people are individually discovering it but we haven't collectively found this as a community for how do we move out of the of wailing and I feel like sometimes the tone is that if you are able to articulate a resurrection it automatically is seen as like a denial of the wailing and the pain and the trauma. Talk I don't know if that's that. true. Yeah. yeah, I think that, like, when people will bring up, like, what if, uh, personally for me, the way that I, like, talk about how to move through sexual shame, for example, is to actually look at, well, what were the things that the shame is trying to protect me from? So for a lot mm-hmm. of people, when it comes to sexual shame, it's like, they're trying to, the fears that were instilled in us around having sex before marriage, basically, is what most people are feeling shameful about, um, or having sex with the people they want to have sex with. It's usually, like, scared of unwed pregnancies or pregnancies out of wedlock and fear of STDs or STIs, fears of going to hell, all those things. And if we believe that those things are bad then that shame is actually protecting us. And the people that taught us to experience that shame were really trying to just instill in us a protection mechanism so that we don't get hurt. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a good thing. Like we want to have those protection mechanisms in ourselves so that we don't drive over the speed limit in ways that are super reckless, so that we don't eat food that's not actually going to be good for us um so we don't stick our fingers or a fork in an electrical outlet you know (laughs) like those things are actually really healthy and positive and I think that the way is that I mean for a lot of people the pain of leaving a, a religious institution is that these people were trying to protect you from hell but the way they were trying to do that was really damaging and so can we have space for frustration and pain and 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 articulating the ways in which this was unhealthy but also have space to recognize that the people teaching this for the most part were doing it from a place of of real care and love and concern and there doesn't necessarily always seem to be space for both of those things to coexist because I think part of the healing process is seeing this fully feeling the trauma and the pain and then being able to look at the oh, they were really trying to do something good. Can I still love them from that place whilst still holding the the paradox of they did something that hurt me, but they had good intent? Yeah, and also that they were also operating from their own place of trauma. 100%. I think that that's a huge thing too because if you're really afraid of hell, then you're really going to encourage other people to not go to hell. And going to traumatize them from your trauma, which we do a lot. Trauma is is inherited. Um, we pass it on to the next generation if we don't heal it. And we also pass it on to other people next to us if we're not interested in, in healing it or we don't do the work in healing it. Um, I think the other thing that was coming up as you were talking is I was thinking about how it really – I think we talk about purity culture – 
or people talk about hell. I mean, I, I also have a theory that men start deconstructing hell and doing soteriology, like salvation deconstruction first, especially cis straight men, whereas a lot of other people have to reconcile their relationship with their body in the very beginning of their deconstruction. And like, does God hate me because I'm attracted to the same sex? Does God hate me because I have a pussy and boobs? Does God hate me because I'm trans? And so we have to figure out, does God, people who are not cis straight men who are told and often, and white, I'll also add that to it, who are the image of God as it's presented in the evangelical world, don't wonder if God loves them. They say God loves me, so therefore God could not send me to hell, and that begins their deconstruction process. Whereas I don't, I think that that's a privileged place to come from, but I also think it points to the fact that everyone is deconstructing something different, but it all points back to this idea eventually of is God really truly loving? Because I, I've put all my cards or my all my eggs in the basket on that God is loving and everything is lining up and saying God isn't. And purity culture is a symptom of that. Homophobia is a symptom of that. Patriarchy is a symptom of that. Racism is a symptom of that. Or dealing with the racism of of the church is dealing with a symptom of the question, is God loving? And I think something that is really hard to um, do, which requires a lot of introspection, is to realize that um, – now I'm trying to get my words together because I'm thinking as you're talking, it's about colonization and it's about being able to understand that the, – the, that and grieve the fact that this entire system of religious understandings that comes out of evangelicalism is rooted in domination – and comes out of a desire for domination. And that's a huge other thing that needs to be grieved as well, is that the religion and the God that I like have loved for a lot of my life is, for me, I came to the conclusion, is not the God of the evangelical church. I was loving a God of love, and that was not the God that I was witnessing or experiencing at church. That brings me to a question and a comment. So my favorite quote is always like, the God you don't believe in doesn't exist. Because I I just love the way that that's articulated. And it's so succinct, but also so accurate. But the other thing that I wonder is, you were saying that the God of evangelicalism isn't the God that you were worshiping. Or the God that you believed in. And I wonder, like, is that always the case that the God of evangelicalism is, by definition, this God that is imperialistic and colonizing and white, cisgendered, heterosexual, all of those things? Or is there a space in certain sub subsets of evangelicalism where God can be more expansive? So that's like, I think that's probably where I am right now. And I'm leaning towards, yes, the God of evangelical Christianity is is a god of colonialism is a god of imperialism and that is not does not i don't believe that that's the god of liberation theology that's not the god even that i would even say is present in church tradition even though there's a lot of problems with church tradition 
when I've looked at the history of evangelical theology, it very much comes from a place of wanting to justify slavery, wanting to justify colonizing what we call today the United States. And it has to justify, um, it uses the Bible to justify those acts of violence. And, and it, and I guess Catholicism is guilty of this too, of course, but it also comes from this place of saying that any other experience that you have of God that does not have the approval of our institutions is demonic and is evil. And this came up to me yesterday because I'm working on some uh, logo stuff for a program I'm launching, which is very exciting. It's called the Feminist School of Theology. It's going to be fabulous. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> How do I sign up? <laughs> the, um, the, that a woman in a business Facebook group that I'm in, not a deconstruction group that I'm in, um, said to me that feminism has no place in Christianity. Not surprising that somebody says that. I hear that all the time. Oh, we got a YouTube comment that said that. Oh, great. We were I'm told so that we need to read us. our Bibles better. Oh, Rachel, we didn't. Re- we don't read our Bibles. Thank, thank God. There. I mean, I'm Catholic. I'm. I don't have any responsibility to read a Bible, but <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad, as somebody who studied biblical studies in my grad program, that there are people out there to inform me that I haven't read the Bible enough. As you guys, I should just get a PhD in biblical studies. Then I guess. And even then, that would be the problem. So. <laughs> that would be the problem. Mostly okay. because you're a woman who's talking about women's empowerment. Anyway, sorry, side note, we got a comment saying that we don't read the Bible, which is true for me, but not for Lori. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. So wait, oh, so the, um, the idea, she also said, this woman also said that all goddesses are demons. And this is, that's, that's real. That's like a, well, it's not true, but it's also like a real belief And that was used so much to demonize indigenous religions because if if the goddess that the Mayans are worshipping or the Aztecs are worshipping or the uh, the Dakotas are worshipping, or the Lakotas, I'm sorry, I misremembered the name of that tribe, um, are are worshipping are real, and they're good and beautiful because they're talking about fertility and life, death, and resurrection and all these great things, then that challenges the existence of Christianity. So the only response then is to say, actually, those were demons who are tricking you and pulling you away from God. But so much of deconstruction doesn't just require us to say, oh, does God love me? No, I'm not going to hell. Or does God love me? Um, salvation comes from loving others or discovering that God loves me even like as a woman, not even though, but as a woman, God loves me as a queer person. God loves me as a trans person, but also that God, that I don't have a monopoly on God. And I think that that is really hard to release. And I think that in some ways is one of the reasons why the grieving and the wailing still sits around because there's that that there's a huge battle 
that requires a lot of white people, and the deconstruction community is predominantly white, to reconcile with their own privilege as well. And that's extremely scary. Yeah, that's such an interesting way of framing it. I wouldn't have thought about the privilege component of that, mostly because my own experience was such that, like, I stopped believing in God, but still had had experiences of feeling some kind of, like, infinite loving force that surrounded all of everything, such that I knew there was something there. And then when I looked at other religions, I also, being Catholic, like, you... There are encyclicals, at least if you are if you are well catechized as a Catholic and have read your encyclicals, um, there are encyclicals that say that like anybody can find salvation regardless of whether or not they believe in Jesus. Those will also say that you're still saved through Jesus Christ, even if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. But if you're an awesome Muslim or if you're an awesome Buddhist or you're an awesome Hindu, like you are going to be saved because you were doing the best you could, given what you understood. Still imperialistic, still really not so great, but like there's space there for seeing the validity in other traditions. And so when I left Christianity for a bit, like I already was ready to say, how are these other cultures and traditions experiencing and communicating that experience of God? Does that make sense? That's sort of an intense sentence. But if we look at it as the founders of any religious tradition had an experience of the divine and then they needed to articulate it to a community and also ritualize it so that others could have that same experience without having to just like be a mystic, right? Like Muhammad had this mystical experience. It needed to be translated to the community. And so there's all these like rituals and texts that were written and and developed in order to share that experience of the divine with others and yeah so it it never really occurred to me to see how or to reflect upon how previous understandings of Catholicism or Christianity were in fact imperialistic in that way because I'd already like let go of it by the time I was like looking toward other things and yeah Yeah, I think also what I see so much in deconstruction spaces that are still Christian, um, because there's also a lot of deconstruction places that are really open to atheism and and agnosticism, which is also great. Um, But what I see a lot is this battle or this wrestle with trying to make Christianity good and okay. And I see this happening a lot in... um, in ways that that cling still to to the parts of Christianity that are so destructive and dangerous. And I guess the one example that's coming to mind is the way that people argue for the writings of Aquinas. And like there's a lot of there's good stuff in Aquinas, but like patriarchy exists. Well, and St. Augustine. Patriarchy exists because of both of those men and their writings on the body. Like that's that's why it exists and and well and maybe before that because of you know ancient Rome wasn't that great either but I'm like and if it wasn't them it would have probably been somebody else anyway so it's not they're also like speaking from their cultural context sure and I understand that 
I also think, though, that there's a problem when we elevate, um, I'll go back to Augustine, elevate Augustine's arguments about God being a loving God when we don't also acknowledge that Augustine wasn't talking about women when Augustine was talking about God-loving humanity. Augustine genuinely was just talking about men. And we know that because of the way he talks about women. And so when we try to, so when I say still thinking Christianity is good, like we need to really pull out our demons, our actual, the real demons that are within Christianity, really pull them out and realize that there are some of our, our, the people who are putting on pedestals that need to come down far off their pedestals as church leaders, as church thinkers, as, and as church theologians. And to try to like, it's almost like sometimes I think I see people doing puzzle pieces of trying to make it fit. And it doesn't fit all the time because we have to actually release the idea that Christianity is the ultimate truth and that God doesn't reveal God's self through multiple different ways and multiple different traditions. I wonder, like, do you think there's a way to salvage, like, the good pieces of Augustine or Aquinas or whomever whilst still holding the paradox that is in all of us where, like, we are not perfect human beings and they're socially located and, 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 and culturally conditioned to say certain things and to be in a certain way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't have some level of understanding of the divine that's actually really good that we do want to hold on to like is there space for that do you think or not because I mean I personally am like all about acknowledging that all the people that wrote about theology are human (laughs) none of us are God um in the totality of God which means that like we'll always be a little bit off we'll always be a little bit stuck in our own separateness and therefore will never be fully on point all of the time. But is there space and generosity within ourselves? Can we give ourselves and other people the grace to, even those people that are high on pedestals, the grace to to be imperfect? In part, I say that because... In part, I say that because I think it's if we can't extend that grace to those other humans, I don't think it's really possible for us to extend that grace to ourselves. And that I think can be really detrimental long-term if we have an expectation of ourselves being perfect, which is a common expectation coming from more um, fundamentalist understandings of, of heaven and hell and how we get there. So can we have space for our own messiness by having space for the messiness of those that came before us? And even the messiness of, like, church tradition and history. I think so. But I also think it requires to take them down off their pedestals. And I'm not saying that I think people are arguing that Augustine is God. But I do think they're, he's, he's high on a pedestal to the point that there are people who are probably really uncomfortable with me critiquing him right now. And, and I think, and I, and I, we do that also with the Bible, like Protestants do that with the Bible. It goes up on this high pedestal and they're, I'm sure a bunch of people are upset with what I just said now, but 
And then when we find the problems, we're like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, people were crazy back then. Or, or yeah, he was, yeah, he was confused. But he's still on the pedestal. Whereas what I would love to see is him to come down off the pedestal. And actually, and this is, this is liberation theology, but to put the, the women, queer people, people of color, indigenous people, and poor people in the center of our theological talk instead of, instead of the old dead white men who celebrated colonialism and patriarchy. And then if we do that, then we can let Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin even and Luther and all those people inform us, but yet still like be looking, be focusing on, on the margins in the center. Have them inform rather than define, which I think like a few times in grad school, I think I said something jokingly to people about how not jokingly, but like jokingly because you can't say this legitimately in the academy without someone being like, you know, crucify her, um, was we don't need another dissertation on Aquinas. We don't need another dissertation on Augustine. We don't need another dissertation on like old, dead, white men. We don't need that. What we need is a dissertation on womanist theologians or on how indigenous cultures have brought their unique flavors and their old and their traditions from their indigenous religions to Christianity and what that really means and how that actually enriches Christianity rather than like dilutes it and makes it less legitimate, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I was just about to shout amen. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be offensive to anyone who is writing a dissertation on Aquinas or Augustine. I, you know, there are people hopefully people that we will get on this podcast at some point that I'm sure are pulling from those people and those texts in ways that are more liberatory, but not only from those people in their dissertations, you know? Well, yeah, I actually had the same conversation with a friend of mine in grad school where I was like, if one more white dude tells me he wants to go to to get a PhD and write his dissertation on Augustine and love, I swear to God, I'm going to throw whatever's in my hand at his head. (laughs) And you're like, please don't write about that. Everyone's writing about Augustine and love. Write about something interesting. He's dead. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't, he is in, in glory. Let him And let unless him you're talking about, like, his love of the prostitute that he lived with for 20 years and how shitty it was that he, like, just left her for some 12-year-old because his mom told him to, like, Let's talk about that as his understanding of love, not like whatever fancy writings he had, because clearly it didn't translate into actual loving behavior. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's also appropriate. I didn't realize he left the prostitute for a 12-year-old. Um, I don't know if she was 12. She was definitely like way younger than we think is appropriate for marrying somebody, given that he was like not also 12. <laughs> Check. Yeah. Yeah, and what comes to mind as well is I remember getting in a Facebook debate with someone who was trying to argue with me, which, I mean, any 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 great conversation always begins with I was talking to someone on Facebook. But this... Yeah, you shouldn't argue on Facebook. No one should. <laughs> but it happens sometimes. We lose self-control and we we do it anyway. Where somebody tried to comment that... My post on the Divine Feminine was paid. Like, I don't really know what he was getting at. 
but he was arguing that I was his I guess at, at the end of the conversation it like clued in that like he was thinking my post was patriarchal because it was saying that God had a human body in the incarnation which I I I, I can't even begin to break that apart. Isn't that the foundation of Christianity? Just yes, but there's a there's also there. there's also this huge thing happening where some people are like talking talking about Christ like like the like devaluing the incarnation and they see that as there's a way in which they're seeing that as liberatory because it's not like no God wasn't Jesus wasn't like a man in a man's body. It was like they're they're seeing it as like metaphorical. But I think it's actually coming from men who are embarrassed about what it means historically to have a man's body and the abuse that's been done in, in men's bodies instead of reconciling the divine masculine with something being sacred. That is a whole other podcast. I'm like, yeah, let's talk about Jesus' incarnation in Christ next time. <laughs> But the only people he was citing were men in his argument. And what I also thought was so telling about that was that he's trying to find feminism and women's support in these voices that don't really hold any power in in the conversation that we're having because the conversation about women, women have been left out of the conversation. That's that's what I meant to say. Women have been left out. So this conversation about what it means to be woman and being sacred is not something, is is a new conversation. And the old, the dead white men don't really have, they have things that can, we can lean on to say like, oh, and something similar was said like this – but we're building new theologies. We're not, we're not reconciling old ones. And I think that it can be, in terms of deconstruction, that can be really terrifying for people who had a lot of power in the old paradigms. They have to release that power, and that's terrifying. And I think, yeah, that's where I get into colonization. Yeah. I also just like that differentiation between – I mean, this wasn't your main point, so I'm sorry for tangenting. But, like, the idea of, like, reimagining old theology versus, like, constructing new theology. That wasn't the language you used either. But something along those lines of, like, that's actually, like, it's a lot easier for people, especially if they're the the, the people in power, um, to say, oh yeah, well we can reimagine this theology. We can look at Augustine and Aquinas and see if they're if we can look at that in a more liberatory way. That's easier than saying, okay, but where are the other voices that we can include in our theology and have as high up as these people or perhaps even higher if it's more liberatory and if it's more aligned with the idea that God is an all-loving God and it's unconditional love. Man, I think unconditional love is something that, like, Christianity really failed at understanding fully (laughs) in a lot of cases. Like, if we can love unconditionally, why why would God not? Side note, 
but we we don't understand yeah like I, I'm with you. Like, we don't really understand what that is. And that's the trauma that the deconstruction world is is battling. The other thing that I was thinking of as you were talking about is, like, I've talked about, like, colonialization, colonization um, in, <laughs> in my – oh, go ahead. Language is hard. That's all. <laughs> Language is hard sometimes. It's morning. <laughs> um, but we also forget – that I think this, and this is probably a little bit more getting behind a pulpit in what I'm about to say than it is actual like intellectual conversation, but I think it's important, is that Europeans broke from the religions of our ancestors when we became Christian, when we took on Christianity. And yes, there is so many ways that the goddess and earth and the moon has been incorporated into Catholic theology because it was Druids and Celtics and Nordic people taking on those religions. But at the same time, we broke from that connection. And so there's a way in which we're still trying to understand the divine as separate from who we are. And then we repeated that trauma within our own colonization, where we stripped other people from their connection to the earth as well. And so I think that's a deeper trauma that goes back thousands of years. And that is what I see so much happening in the wailing of deconstruction, is this yearning to go back to to an ancestral practice that we don't know how to do, because if we have the one true religion then then what are we going to do if if the one true religion is actually broke us away from our mothers that's so sad in part like what's coming up for me is like but god can't fit in any of our boxes god is so so much more like expansive and mysterious and unknowable but at the same time so deeply knowable that there's no way that we can put it into any specific box that it has ever existed or will ever exist it's yeah and so much of like how I approach spiritual practices or even how one articulates or what tradition somebody wants to be a part of is what resonates most with your soul? So I think about this when I look at my husband and I. And a lot of times people will ask questions around like, what do you do if your spouse or your partner isn't the same religion that you are? And I look at it in two ways. One is obviously that thing of like, we're all trying to f- seek the divine and none of us have the perfect answer for it so we can do it anywhere. But the other piece is my soul is different from my husband's soul. So he's drawn to and pulled into Zen Buddhism as articulated and through the lens of being an American, which means that you basically don't have as much of like the the really strict ritualistic aspects, but you're still using the philosophy and the theology of it, but stripped away from some, some of the, the more intense rituals. I can't do that. I get real bored. I can sit in Zen meditation and it's cool and it's fine, but like it's not the thing that makes my soul feel more connected to God. It makes me just like feel 
a little empty inside. What does bring me closer to God is things that are more like bhakti oriented to use Hindu language, which is um, or language from Hinduism, which is more like worshiping the divine and, and finding that or things that are artistic and creative practices for me. And I also really appreciate rituals and the smells and the bells and all the things. And so like that for me is where I find more connection to the divine. But it's really a matter of like what's working best for each of us, not that one way is faster or better or more true, but that they're simply different articulations and understandings of how we can as humans commune with and be in touch with the divine essence that is. Capital I is. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I think it does. And I think that that's what deconstruction, everyone who's deconstructing is starting to realize in, in their, on their own journey of realizing is that God is much bigger than having a one true religion. In, and there's the grieving process of realizing that you didn't find home. You didn't find this sacred, perfect place where you're where everything is romance and happy flowers and butterflies. You, you found a place that was a stop on your journey towards understanding the divine. And that stop is over now and we're moving on. But it's hard when the, everyone at that stop is like, if you go forward, you'll go to hell. And, like, and you're finding that you won't. And... And that is, um, that's scary and it's confusing, especially when you're three years old and you learn that. And then you're, and then that's like the only thing you know in your foundational schema is that I'll go to hell if I move on from this stop. And it's scary and it's worth grieving a lot. I guess I'm curious about like, Grieving and anger and getting stuck in that grieving and anger. And I think there's ways that evangelicalism is more fundamentalist and more like everybody has to believe the same thing identically, whereas Catholicism generally, even if you're in a more conservative space, if you are well catechized, you understand that there's a big tent right? There's, there's the Pope that's over the entire church, but we recognize that the way that somebody is going to be practicing in Africa may look very different from somebody in South America, may look very different from somebody in Southeast Asia, and will look different from somebody in like Europe. And there's an amount of flexibility both in the liturgy and also in how we articulate things and the songs we sing and the practices we do. There's a certain level of commonality, but there's also a lot of space for for nuance within that, that is a cult that is culturally oriented. And it doesn't sound like there's as much space for that, perhaps in evangelicalism, which leads to more pain and suffering when that one way of seeing something is, is, is seen to be or experienced to be not the way anymore and I think there's a question in me about like our communities that are focused on deconstruction 
so focused on deconstruction that they get people stuck in the sadness and the grieving and the anger that comes up from those spaces. Yes, and. (laughs) Like, can we have community and communal support without getting stuck in the muck? And what about it is getting people stuck in the muck and what spaces are helping people get out of the muck? This are is there why qualities call, that do that. Yeah. Sorry. This is why I call my Facebook group deconstruction and reconstruction because we can't just get stuck in deconstruction. And reconstruction, I notice a couple things that happens actually I want to say is one, I think people start reconstructing before they've grieved. So that's that's when I see people trying trying to make Christianity fit and it's not fitting because like they have to it's it's almost like I'm coming up with a metaphor off the top of my head but like it's almost like losing an arm and then instead of like going through the process of like getting the right I don't like this metaphor because it it's falling apart because then it's a fake arm and it's not a real arm. Um, But I'm going to keep going with it. It's almost like trying to like just like stick a stick on there and be like, this is my new arm. Or like this is like trying to construct something on your own instead of going through the process of like getting like the really good new arm added to your body with medical doctors and physical therapists and all those things. So – it's a bad metaphor because then it's not a re- it's not like a biological arm and that bothers me. But that's that's where I'm going with this right now, and I think that that's what happens when we start to reconstruct too soon. But then when we st- don't let ourselves go through the process of reconstruction, then we never get the new arm, and we never go through the process of of moving forward and figuring it out. Um, so I think that those are the two the two things that are coming to mind. I also think that Catholicism has so much more room for incorporating culture into its practices, not to like, because I know that there are a lot of indigenous communities that were colonized by Catholic spaces and there, and there were so many problems and traumas and bad things that happened. But at the same time, I think about how at the same time, there are ways that we can see remnants of. For sure, there are remnants. Um, my like wonderful- one of the most obvious ones is in what? What was that? South America. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at images of Mary, like the Virgin Mary, a lot of them will be shaped like a triangle which is the same shape that was really commonly used for Pachamama. And so it's very, very clear in the imagery and the iconography of certain saints and certain people that like we were, like not we, but that the indigenous cultures were, were really laying upon the tradition that they were being forced to, to live into. They were just sort of putting on top of that what they were already believing before. Right. And that's like a really, really easy one that if you want to quickly Google – you can Google pictures of Pachamama and then pictures of, like, the Virgin Mary from, like, northern Chile and Ecuador, etc. And you'll see 
They're very similar. Well, I just, and I also just read a really interesting article since I'm in Mexico about the Our Lady of Guadalupe. And we've talked a little bit about this, but there's so many, there's so many different interpretations of, of who she is and where she's from. And some indigenous groups call her Tonanson. Actually, some call her um, Kotliklu. Was that the goddess you were mentioning before? I'm not going to try. But yes, that is yes. a goddess. I'm like, that's how someone who we're not speaking Aztec would pronounce that. Yes. Word. And, I, and, I, and I'm probably <laughs> And I'm not going to try and make it better because I can't. I'm not going to try to. I, I'm. I can't. My Spanish is terrible. And like every time I like go to order coffee, everyone here just like turns to me and they're like, what size? Do you want medium, small or large? And it's like, no, I was. <laughs> you can tell. Spanish is so I can I can ask it's okay that happened to me in Barcelona it didn't happen to me while I was like walking the Camino de Santiago and generally speaking when I'm in France they'll just assume I'm Italian and then start talking to me in Italian and I'm like that no mm -mm, that's definitely one I don't know anything about (laughs) it's 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 very like it's 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 hard very funny I'm like sad Americans I'm like I can I can speak Spanish but apparently you know that it's not my first language. But anyways, um, you see these signs because the culture of that country, nation, community that was colonized held on to so much of their traditions. And I even remember a nun at, at BC talking about how before people get married, and she's from Africa. I'm not, I'm not entirely certain what, what part of Africa she's from or what country she's from. But she talked about how before people get married, they consult their ancestors. And the ancestors are present as a part of the decision if two people can get married or not. And that's not like – that's a Catholic practice. That's something that Catholics are doing is consulting their ancestors. And if you said to – this kind of goes back to our our last podcast about tarot, but like if you turned to one of those old women and you were like, you're practicing worship of a goddess or you're like doing something witchy or whatever, they would be so insulted because they're good Catholic women. But there's space in Catholicism for those – that fluidity, I think. Whereas in Protestantism, it's you say this prayer – and then you take on our culture, and that is how you are saved. I have an interesting side note, and then I want to go back to like the de- reconstructing before deconstructing, because I was thinking about that, not exactly in those, in those terms, because I was thinking about it from a Catholic lens, around stages of faith, and sort of broke them down further than what James Fowler does, and think it could be useful and helpful. One thing I want to say about acculturation within Catholicism in cultures that are not European, I guess. Um, so my paternal grandparents both were raised in Mex, both were born in Mexico, um, and my family does not practice the Day of the Dead. That is one hundred. That's like one hundred percent not something that's done in the area. We're from Jalisco. But we also come from a pretty strong line of Spanish people in Mexico. So the idea of the Day of the Dead, obviously we've got some indigenous blood in us because that happens when you are in a 
when you're the colonizer or when you're the colonized. Um, there's mixing that occurs, but we are pretty Spanish in our Mexican side, and they do not practice the Day of the Dead because that is a not Catholic enough practice historically speaking, but you go to other areas of Mexico and 100%, that's like totally what we know about. Like Pixar Coco, Pixar's Coco was about that because they know it's such a common practice in Mexican culture and it's something they wanted to highlight and raise up, but that's not something that my family ever did. (laughs) Um, And it's really interesting. And for a while, I thought it was just like, oh, we're not Mexican enough. But no, no, no. It's actually like this. There's a difference even in the different places in the country around how you practice your Catholicism based upon where, you know, who are your descendants and how are they trying to or not trying to pass on traditions that weren't originally Catholic. I'm using quotation marks. That also goes into ways that, like, the ways that the Black Madonna has been incorporated so much into Catholic spaces. And, I mean, I remember I did a a hunt. So there's so much of the Black Madonna in Italy. And there's tons of Black Madonnas in in Italy and southern France and, and Spain. And so I wanted to know if there was a Black Madonna in my ancestral town. And I found her. There is one very cool and the idea and the history behind the idea of the black madonna and the way women would incorporate an understanding of who she is like there is this practice done near where my hometown my my hometown my ancestral hometown is that women will go up this hill and they'll sit on this stone throne and pray to mary and then like tie knots on the trees like representing their prayer to like ask for a husband and they call this chair like the throne of mary it we know like archaeologically speaking we know it was a temple to the goddess Chibella. and we like we just know that and yet these women continue to go up to this hill and be like this is mary's throne this is mary's throne but that same practice to pray to Chibella for love or for marriage was also what you would do when you would go to that temple so there's this there's this way that like the practice has become catholic even though it is rooted not in catholicism and in something very different and there's room for that because again if you were to go to that town and you would turn to the people and be like you're praying to the goddess they would be like Mm, no I'm not but um but their space whereas if Protestants had come into that space they would say you may not go to that area that is evil you are praying to a demon do not go there sit and wait for God to bring you your husband and whatever would go alongside with that I think another piece of it, it's like the history of Catholicism is so much older than evangelicalism that we don't remember when these things happened. Like we don't know when or who was the first person or how it came about that people went from worshiping Jabella to using the language of it's Mary. We don't know when that happened. We don't know when the Day of the Dead started to be something that was very much a Catholic practice within Mexican culture. 
like we have we have no idea because it happened a, a long long time ago and it's not in our ancestral memories anymore um which is kind of a it's helpful in the way that like what you were saying before about as Europeans or as people who are descendant from from Europeans we don't actually have a felt memory of what our spiritual practices were before Christianity took over. Like, I have no idea what, like, my French relatives or British relatives or Irish relatives or German relatives. I am a complete mutt, y'all. Like, <laughs> you look at my ancestry, I'm like, nah, <laughs> somewhere. I even have, like, some Senegalese in there just for, just for good measure. Um, but, like, we don't. Like, we don't know what those people were practicing before. And so it's, yeah. We we do kind of, though. Like, you're saying your Irish background. That is one of the most preserved Celtic traditions. Right. Like, we could look at Celtic stuff. But we actually don't know, like, is there so much variation in that that, like, first off, when did my people get to Ireland in the first place? But also, like, what, were they practicing that or were they practicing something else? Well, Well, and I think that that also goes into... I think what we have within the old, and I'm going to say the old Christianity, and I mean like the old paradigm, not what we're building, the old one, is is something that I think actually happened more because of the Enlightenment, where we want to like have facts, like, and to know for sure. Um, I have no clue if any of my ancestors ever climbed that hill and prayed for a husband. I have no clue. What I do know is that I really want to go up that hill. Do you know what I mean? And um, I don't know if my great-grandmother, who would have been in Buena Alberga, she if she ever even attended the church. that ha- I think she did. I think there's only one church in that town. But, um, but if she ever cared about Mary, I think she did because I know that she had a Mary in her room, but still like what, like what was her relationship? I have no clue what that was. I don't know. um, We don't know historically. Like I don't, you can never find out what your actual ancestors thought about your Irish ancestors thought about the Morgan. You'll never know. But what we can know is that there is, within the space of your ancestry, those things happened. And and then when, if those things resonate with our souls, we can follow them. Because I do think, and this is, probably sounds extremely mystical, but I think our soul knows what our ancestral practices were. I think we can't intellectually prove it. And I think that that's a different thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk briefly about the deconstruction reconstruction thing, just because I think it's useful to sort of frame it. So this is going to get a little in the weeds, but hopefully it'll be useful to someone. So especially at the School of Theology and Ministry with the people who, who teach stages of faith there, um, like Jane Regan teaches it a lot and she's amazing. I love Jane. Um, but there's others who teach there too that talk about it. And it's interesting because sometimes there's an orientation toward, well, everybody here at the STM is obviously in stage four, which is like 
self-authored understanding of faith. And that's not really the case. And so it was really frustrating to me while I was there to be like, no, 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 but this doesn't actually resonate the way I think it should. So I sort of broke things down a little bit further just to like, eventually I will write a paper about this. So don't steal my intellectual property, those of you listening. But I think it's really important to separate it out more. And I think that the reconstructing before deconstructing fits in there sort of at like 3B slash 3C or 4A. Um But basically, stage three is when somebody is conscious of how the stories of their faith aren't necessarily literal, but are they're very subject to the fact that their faith is one that comes from a community. So I think for evangelicals, it may be that the the literalism is still present, but there's this idea that you are conscious of the fact that you have a community of faith that you are assenting to. You belong to this community. The next part of stage three is really when somebody is really starting to become conscious of their participation in their faith and potentially mark that participation with a ceremony like baptism or confirmation if you're Catholic, or it can even be like converting to a new faith tradition. But you're still participating in a faith tradition that is that you're somewhat like subject to. You can't take as object the fact that you are part of a tradition where there's other traditions that are also potentially true. So at this stage, it's still that like you may be aware of other traditions, but the tradition that you're participating in is considered the best and the most true. The next piece is like somebody who's, which I would frame as like 4A, is when someone becomes critical of the tradition they're a part of, but still believes that that tradition is the one and only tradition that holds the truest of truths. So I think a lot of times like that's where people are starting to deconstruct is when you're like, there's a piece of this tradition that doesn't hold water anymore, but the tradition itself still has to stay true, which is where that like reconstructing before deconstructing comes in. Because somebody's going to say, yeah, it's patriarchal. Yeah, it's been like super colonizing and imperialistic, but... I still have to make this true. So I'm going to like look at Augustine. I'm going to look at Aquinas and find the things that I can like twist in order to get what I need out of it. Because this tradition is the one that it's the truest truths. Stage 4B is when someone becomes like truly self-authoring in their faith. And what happens either there is like you can either leave the tradition or opt toward like atheism or agnosticism. Or just begin to have an open-minded faith idea um, that may be like spiritual or not religious, or it may just be open to other spiritual traditions. So it might like include a little bit of New Ageism or witchy stuff or whatever as they start to experience the truths of other faiths as equally valid to their own, if that makes sense. So like what Lori and I oftentimes are talking about are ways in which like, yeah, there's as much validity in whatever other tradition as there is in Christianity it's just a matter of like what's resonating best with you in the moment and being able to see that is really important that's not the only way it can show up it could also show up as like I said agnosticism or atheism or it could show up as only moving toward new ageism or finding you know the law of attraction or something like that I don't love the law of attraction because I think it can be really problematic but something that people find Stage 5A 
is where like all traditions have something of value and hold equally valid truths. And that's really important, like equally valid truths. All traditions have some truth in them and all of them are equally valid. So it's not like the truth in Christianity is the fullest truth or the best truth. It's this is a truth, but Hinduism also has a truth and that those truths are equally full. Um, and the person themselves has clearly chosen a mix of traditions to practice or to go deep with. And I think that's important because if we like sort of meander around just looking at things, we're never going to really get to the like richness of, of finding the divine. But it doesn't necessarily have to be like within a specific tradition. It could be you're, you're putting, you're piecing things together in a way that feels really good to you and going deep with your own personal practice. If somebody's atheist, they maybe start to see like the value in religious, in religion and spirituality again, even if they never actually practice it. So there's a, like a sense of awe or wonder sort of in the Carl Sagan way of when he talks about the universe. There's like awe and wonder there and mystery that somebody who's atheist can totally respect and value. And if somebody has left a tradition, they can start to see the meaning in the tradition that they left in a new way. Um, yeah. And then 5B is like really being able to see that all stages of any tradition as part of the process that are good and valid. So no longer angry that somebody is so stupid to believe in the man in the sky, but rather accepting of where everyone is on their own journey toward finding God. That was a lot. That'll be written out at some point in time, but like just a quick overview. But I think to the point of like the reconstructing before deconstructing, I think it's that, a piece of the puzzle. I think that that is so important because as I'm thinking back on like what we've been talking about for the past hour and how we talk about uh, like the ways that religions have morphed in to within Catholicism and that hasn't been allowed within Protestantism in the same way, not to say that, again, not to disparage the actual real horror that was inflicted by many people by Spanish and French colonialism that brought Catholicism to those communities. But that, um, but the idea that, that there is this, this, this space to like figure out who God is within your cultural context that exists in, in Catholicism, it makes me think of the critique that I heard a lot growing up, which is like cafeteria Christianity or cafeteria religion, where you're just picking and choosing what works for you. And I think that that only makes sense if you're in like three, one of the levels of three or maybe even a late two, um, where you're, you're looking for someone to have already figured out God and to tell you who God is. And it leaves out that experience of like, what does my soul know? And what is my soul? Yeah, and, and you're not conscious of the fact that that's what you want. You're not conscious of the fact that you want someone to tell you what's true. Yes. You're simply trusting that the authority figure is telling you what's true, whether that authority figure is the Bible or your pastor or the Pope or whomever. Yes. And I think one of the things that we're doing by starting to claim we're reconstructing before we've really deconstructed is we're still looking for a supreme knower to tell us who it is, be it Reinhold Niebler or Richard Rohr or like Sarah Bessie, who are all 
people who I've read and enjoyed. Um, but also, like, we're looking for a supreme knower to be the one who has all the answers for us instead of being able to settle in and what does my soul already know and let me follow that. But also it makes me think about how there's so many atheists, as you talked about atheism, who have not reconstructed, who have abandoned behind what they, what they believed. And so now it kind of goes into this idea of someone said, I wish some atheists would just say they don't believe in a white supremacist colonialist Christian God. Because that's all they seem to know that they don't believe in. Because they don't seem... That's what Richard Dawkins does. Yeah. He's like, I don't believe... God, the God delusion, all that stuff. And it's... It's against... It's, it's great against, for people at a certain stage. And it's necessary. And that's a really important perspective. But it is not... That is not where we should end. And I think... That's me being not quite fully open to all expressions and experiences. That's my bias right there. Being like, we shouldn't end there. That's not a good place to end. Um, but there's a lot of people who want to stay there. I'm sure Richard Dawkins is not going to move forward. Same right. Harris, probably not going to move forward. But that's when, a perspective. And when we have a limited <laughs> understanding of all the different ways to know God... And we only know that the one way that we have understood God is is the wrong way... That's great. But like, but yet there are so many other ways. I remember meeting a guy on Bumble. It seems, seems like I'm going in a different direction, but I'm staying on topic. Um, who, who asked me if, um, you know, of course, they were like, are you okay with dating an atheist? Which happens all the time. And I say, especially when I was dating in Boston. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. And then he said that all religion... Um, is about controlling people and I said cool like that's not crazy I've heard that plenty of times before and I and then he said and I said what do you mean when you say religion he goes what the Romans created like religion was I think he said religion was created by the Romans to control the masses and I was like this dude literally just said that the Romans invented religion so Egypt didn't exist Sumerian didn't exist completely ruling out any of the religions of North and South America, Celtics, Druids, anything, like Hinduism, Buddhism. No, none of those exist. And it was like... <laughs> no, Romans... Like, we need you to get a little more educated around, like, religion. Yeah. Period. And so it was just like, I <laughs> clearly know you have no clue what you're talking about. Don't believe in God. But that's great. Don't believe in God. But... If you just don't believe in the Christian God and the Greco-Roman deities, then like there's a lot like you have a lot you have a lot to critique. And so to deconstruct fully and really understand what what you are no longer going to take with you allows us to then know what we are going to take with us. Are we and then you can take with you an atheism that is like full and complete and fulfilling to who you are as a human instead of something that's broken into into fragments of Christianity that you're carrying around with you and saying, look, Christianity's broken. And that's that's what I was thinking. It just really ends up leaving us with two-dimensional worldviews if we're not fully deconstructing before we reconstruct. Um, and there was another thought I had as you were going through that. But I'm going to stop talking because I'm not sure what it was. That's okay. 
we can do a whole other episode on that because it would be really fun to me in my like geeking out about stages of faith because and if anyone's curious about stages of faith i believe rachel talked about them in our second episode probably Possibly yes our third um but yes rachel has gone through definitely in her introductory episode she talked about it so go back to episode two if you want to hear more about stages of faith yeah and I also do like a workshop almost every month called The Three Keys to Releasing Sexual Shame. And one of them is based around stages of faith. So you can also learn more by signing up for my mailing list and getting notified about when to when the next one of those workshops will be. And they're free, which is cool. Nice. Yes. I think that I think that all of this is is important in terms of like what's going on in the deconstruction world. I think for those of you who are deconstructing, I think our solution for you, or solution is such a problematic word, but our what we're presenting is that the need to really dig deep into, into that sorrow of deconstruction so that we can rebuild into a place of full and glorifying reconstruction. And to be super conscious of like, are we hanging out in the sorrow and the sadness just because it's comfortable? And because there's like solid community there. Because I think a lot of people I've talked to who are coming from evangelical Christian backgrounds, a huge piece of that is communal support and feeling like you've lost community. And so when you find community again, it feels really good to just stay in that community and not trust that your individual path may lead you in and out of different communities over the course of your life. And it's okay because you'll always find your people again. And it may take longer and there may be fewer of them that you find as you continue on your path, but they're there. And we can trust that like whatever it is that you believe in will lead you to the next group of people that's going to be your community. Hmm. That's really good. Yes. Because I, even thinking back on my own deconstruction and the communities that I've left, I'm now in a space where I'm sur- I'm not surround I'm not surrounded by a church full of people of like, I mean I grew up in a church with like two thousand people in it, so not the same as that. But now I'm not in a church with like fifty people of like the Goddess Church where I go to every Sunday, but I am. I am in a I am in a place where I have my tribe and and the tribe will change and evolve but I have my tribe. I feel the same way about like the people I met when I was living in New York. They're still my people. Um and it's been challenging to be away from those people, but ultimately like am I still in touch with them? Do I still like, I did, like, a Zoom kirtan with people that I used to do kirtans with when I was living in New York. Um, and that's beautiful. And I still get to experience that. That's one of the blessings of the pandemic, y'all, is I, I have been really grateful for being able to participate in things from afar. Because I do feel a little bit like I'm being in Boston and being away from those people. I actually feel like I'm, like, living in exile, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. I'm going to go explore that, actually. Speaking of reading the Bible as a Catholic, I'm going to go explore my feelings of being in exile by being in Boston. <laughs> oh, that's good. 
Well, okay. On that note, yeah, I think that's all we have for you. Do you have anything else you want to say, Lori? I think that is everything. Great. Thank you all for joining us today. As always, subscribe, like, share, um, review. Five-star reviews are awesome. They help more people find us on all of the sites. Um, And, of course, you can follow us on Instagram at sexpositivechristianfeminists. You can find me on Instagram at rachel.alba.coaching. You can find Lori at Lori Kimmerly. And if you're interested in learning about learning more about feminist theology and erotic spirituality, check out Lori's programs and blog at www.lorikimmerly.com. And for more information about sex coaching and stages of faith, all that good stuff, you can find me at sexwithspirit.com. Don't Google sex with spirits. You'll find people that want to have sex with ghosts. Funny side note. (laughs) We are the Sex Positive Christian Feminists, and we will see you next week for another conversation about sexuality, spirituality, and feminism. Toodles. Bye. All right.